welcome to this session. With me is Jennifer Keane, Professor of History at Chapman University in California, and Georges-Henri Soutou, a retired professor now of history here in Paris. We're going to discuss issues arising out of the American entry to the war and uh, from Woodrow Wilson's vision for peace and the new world order which he anticipated. Um, this is part of a series of five docudramas which carry the overall title of The Long Road to Peace. The essential argument is this, that from the moment the war broke out in 1914, there was a discussion going alongside the war efforts made by each of the belligerent countries that concerned the possible road to peace, the possibility of achieving peace, a passage that became particularly intense after Woodrow Wilson's effort to intervene in December 1916, but a story which did not reach its culmination until long after the 11th of November 1918, until 1923 with the Treaty of Lausanne signed with Turkey. In that period between November 1918 and 1923, possibly four million more people were killed in Europe and in the Near East. Now the peace story is often overlooked in the focus on the fighting and the aim of the series is to tell that story using primary sources, by which I mean diaries, letters, diplomatic correspondence, uh, newspaper reports, to capture the words and experiences of those who were involved in the process. The first of these five docudramas is called Enter the Peace Broker. Uh, it is concerned with Wilson. And to understand Wilson's peace initiative, we're going to go first to February 1915, when Colonel Edward House, the president's close advisor, is crossing the Atlantic in order to come to Europe. Daily Mail, February the 2nd, 1915. The crew of the steamship that was sunk by German submarine U-21 on Saturday have returned home. The submarine, commanded by Lieutenant Otto Hersing, is still in the Irish Sea. And three other submarines, all of them obviously German, have been reported in St. George's Channel to the south of the waters where U-21 began her exploits. The Berliner Tageblatt, commenting on the attack, said, the German people will hear the news with great pleasure, as England seems to place her main hope on the starving out of Germany. As they deal with us, so we must deal with them.
February the 6th, 1915, on board the Lusitania. The voyage is soon to come to an end. It looked as if we might perish, so fierce was the storm. Despite our great size, the ship tossed about like a cork in the rapids. This afternoon, as we approached the Irish coast, our captain decided to hoist the American flag, and this created much excitement. Though the Lusitania is a fine ship, we don't claim it as one of our own. But the captain had become greatly alarmed at the possible threat of a German submarine and raised the flag in order to reduce the chance that we'd be torpedoed. Because of his concern, he mapped out a complete program for the rescue of passengers, the launching of lifeboats, etc., etc. But under the stars and stripes, we're arriving safely. Thanks be to God. Colonel Edward House has reached Britain's shores. He's the president's right-hand man, his advisor, though he has, by choice, no ministerial position, whether he's really a colonel or not, is far certain. But his motives are good, we're told. He's here on an unofficial quest to bring peace to the world. He'll visit Paris and Berlin, as well as London, talk to politicians, talk to the great and the good. He can talk to me if he cares to. Uh, the chief here. Find out where Mr. Edward House is staying, will you? House. President Wilson's man. Just arrived. Suggest to him that a conversation with Lord Northcliffe might be high up on his agenda. When I see him, I'll tell him that we're all for peace, but not at any price. A negotiated peace sounds like defeatist talk to me. We'll win in the end. I'm certain we will. And my newspapers are playing a crucial role in securing victory. That is the voice of Lord Northcliffe, the proprietor both of the Times and of the Daily Mail uh, in London. He gives you some indication of his responses. When House met Sir Edward Grey, the British Foreign Secretary, uh, he was slightly more amenable, or seemed to be, but constantly reminded Colonel House, that Britain, of course, was committed by its alliance to Russia and to France. Georges Henri, how did France react to the arrival of Colonel House? Well, in a rather dismissive way, actually, because at the time the French still believed that they could win the war in a rather short time. They had not yet realized that it would last for five years. And they thought that House and Wilson behind him were interfering, although they were neutral, they had nothing much to, to do or to say. They were polite, but rather annoyed, because they did not want uh, American interference in what was considered a Franco-German war. And, and did that view persist? I mean, when Wilson produces the December 1916 peace note, what's the French response to that? This, after all, is after Verdun, uh, after the loss of life in the defense of France in 1916? It's a very interesting question. First reaction of the French, uh, 18 months later, in December 16, was the same, interfering university professor, so to say. <laughs> but then the British uh, told French diplomats and political leaders, you should be more careful with Wilson. We should answer his note of December the 18th properly. And we should state our aims. You must not forget that, uh, apart from some very general 
utterances from the French government, French war aims, or British war aims, actually, were still secret. They had not been communicated to the public or to uh, any other country. For the first time, owing to the, the British, who understood it was very important to give an answer to Wilson, they state their aims in a rather hypocritical way, but still, it represented more or less what they intended to do. Jennifer, how did people in the United States respond? After all, France's position, as George Henry has described it, is understandably, France has been invaded. How did most Americans react to that sense of the violation of French territory? So we don't have public opinion polls from this time period to tell us with any sort of precision what American public opinion was. So we have to look at the actions of Americans to really give us some indication. And I think when we look at the actions, we see, in fact, tremendous sympathy for France and tremendous concern. And when I speak of actions, some of the things I'm thinking about are, for example, the numbers of Americans who come to France as volunteers, people like Alan Seeger, who... Uh, volunteer for the French Foreign Legion. We have people like John Dos Passos who become ambulance drivers in France. And of course, the um, Escadre Lafayette. And it's important because these men are mostly coming from the upper class. They're the elites. And so they have strong connections and they get a lot of publicity for their feats. So this encourages Americans to look at what's happening on the ground in France through first-hand accounts that Americans are sending home. And then the other thing that I would really point to as very significant is the large-scale humanitarian effort that Americans participate in. We think a lot about Herbert Hoover organizing relief for Belgians, but a lot of relief is also going to northern France. And there are many school children throughout the United States who become pen pals with French children and especially French orphans and begin exchanging letters. And again, I think it's at this personal level of firsthand accounts that are coming back and forth that we see many Americans developing strong sympathies and attachments to France during this war. George Henry did that dependence, I mean, not just the population in northern France getting food, but did that dependence on the United States uh, from the French side go further than that? How dependent is France in the period of neutrality, of American neutrality on, on the United States? More and more dependent, because the war is going to last for a long time. France needs to compensate for the loss of the most industrial and the richest parts of the country, which are occupied by the German, meaning they have to import lots of uh, raw materials, foodstuff and so on, and machines. And that comes either from Great Britain or from the United States. And in order to pay for those imports, very quickly the French need to be aimed to get loans for the American banking system. After the uh, United States war entry, it was state loans from the United States. But before that, there were private loans from the American banking system. And from that, the French realized they had to uh, foster goodwill in the United States. The French ambassador to Washington, Jules Jusseron, was instrumental. He was the first, the very first, to understand at the beginning of the war that it was very important for the French to have on their side, even if they were not yet in the war, but at least on the moral level, on the side, the great neutral country. 
as a proof of respectability against German aggression, so to say. We're now going to uh, move forward to March 1917 and hear a further clip from the uh, audio. March 27th, 1917, meeting with the president. He wondered whether he should ask Congress to declare war or state that war already exists and request the necessary means to carry it through. I advised the latter option. If he puts a declaration of war up to Congress, there might well be an acrimonious debate. I then told him how anxious I was that as a war president, he should meet the challenges in a creditable way, so that when the conflict's over, his reputation and influence are not reduced, and he's able to do the great work that will follow. I took the liberty to suggest to him that he might not be well suited to the immediate task, too refined, too civilized, too intellectual, too cultivated. It needs a man of coarser fiber, someone less of a philosopher, to conduct a brutal, vigorous, successful war. He agreed. March 30th. Perfect weather, but Woodrow felt that he must work on his message to Congress. So we closed the door and gave orders that no one was to disturb him. We lunched alone. London. My accusation is this. The American embassy. He soothed the American people, encouraged them to be supine, sat them down in comfortable chairs and said, just stay there. March 31st. Woodrow has continued work on his war message. As usual, a draft in shorthand, then correcting it in a combination of shorthand and longhand, then making a fair copy on his typewriter. Meanwhile, I lightened the workload by decoding some cipher messages that had come in. To the belligerents, he was offensively condescending, conceived a vision of himself as president peacemaker. But now, at last, he's been pushed into action. Now, his big idea will be to show how he led the people into a glorious war in defense of democracy. The plain truth is, this whole wretched business has been a catalog of errors. April 1st. The message is finished. This is a man who likes to shut himself away, engage in what he calls thought. The air currents of the world never ventilate his mind, and he maintains his inactive position for as long as public sentiment allows. He's not a leader, he's not a peacemaker, he's a stubborn phrase-maker. April 2nd. Congress convened at 12 noon. When we reached the Capitol, the crowd outside was almost as large as on Inauguration Day. In the gallery, every seat was taken. Woodrow came in. Everyone rose to their feet, and my heart seemed to stop beating. He delivered the speech. There was utter silence until he pronounced the words, We will not choose the path of submission. 
whereupon Chief Justice White, an ex-Confederate soldier, got up and cheered. The response from the floor and the galleries was deafening. So, as you can hear in that extract, the second Mrs. Wilson's worries about the response from Congress to her husband's decision to take the United States into the war uh, were misplaced. The consequence of appearing very often so reluctant to go to war were that the United States entered the war by and large united with the whole country committed to what indeed would be a major war effort. Jennifer, how were American troops received when they arrived in France? American troops had been told in their training camps that they were coming to save France. And we would have to say, certainly in their initial reception in France from French civilians, there was little to dissuade them of that concept. They were feted. They felt they were warmly welcomed. Of course, tensions would develop with French civilians over the course of the war, but at least the initial encounter was very positive. And if we look at French soldiers, and here we have as a resource um, censored records that show us French postal correspondence, we can see in French soldiers' comments to their families at home also very positive comments about the Americans. I think one of the most telling is that they appreciate the Americans' energy, enthusiasm, optimism, and this is one of my most famous quotes, they remind me of ourselves in 1914, which is both, I think, a compliment, um, but also a little bit of a criticism. And then we can think about French generals who certainly appreciated Americans' aggressiveness and enthusiasm for the fight, but criticized their leadership and their over-aggressiveness and believed that they would make good fighting material if properly led. That reference to 1914 strikes a chord in me because one of the things that is obvious from the British experience is that when, in particular, Indian troops arrived in France, they landed, in their case, at Marseille uh, because they had crossed the Mediterranean, uh, they were welcomed in France in ways that surprised them, delighted them, and with a remarkable freedom of any sense of racism, which really was powerful after their journey from British India. How did Afro-American troops respond, and what was their experience? Well, one of the interesting things here is that in the comments that I just made in which I said Americans, I can truly say this was the way all Americans were welcomed, which would have been an experience completely different from the experience black Americans would have at home. And one of the very important things that happens within the American army is that for the 200,000 African American soldiers who come to France, it's as much about this welcome that they receive from French civilians that will be <coughs> seared into their memories as their actual experience fighting or serving in the military. Many African Americans will return home saying that for the very first time in their lives, they were treated as Americans. And for them, this was a novel experience. And once having had it, they did not want to go back to the way things were in the United States. George Henry, 
how did the French people respond, in particular to Woodrow Wilson? Did he remain this aloof person that we heard in the extract? Why is it that French people wrote personally to Wilson? What was the attraction of Wilson for them? Because he decided to enter the war at a very difficult time for the French. Since February 17, it was evident that Russia was going uh, to get out of the war rather quickly. The French were expecting the whole branch of the German army on the Western Front. It was absolutely essential to get American help at that time. Also for economic reasons, it was essential to get American U.S. loans, not only uh, private uh, banking loans, because of technical reasons I shall not mention here. And third, there was a big change of narrative about the war in France in 1917, partly because of the difficulties of the war, partly because the population needed something more to sustain itself, itself than just defending the country. And the narrative was the fight, the war for democracy, and the common fight of the big Western democracies against Germany. And that was very well understood by the new President du Conseil, Prime Minister, after November 1917, Clemenceau. It was his idea, his propaganda, his theme, his narrative, what you like, the alliance of the three major Western democracies. And Wilson profited from that general state of mind. So quite specifically, the 14 points of Woodrow Wilson in January 1918 are well received within France? They were well received by the population, much less so by the ruling elites, by the population. They were quite well received because for the first time, allied or associated statesmen had proclaimed points of international relations, of war aims, if you like, which were not just meant for one country, France or Great Britain, or on the other side for Germany, but which wanted to be valid for the whole mankind after the war, they were opening a future to overcome, not only the last, uh, the current war, but all wars. That was the idea. That was the reason why it was so popular at the time. We're now going to go to London for the third clip, um, and we're going to go to the United States ambassador uh, to Britain, Walter Hines Page, and to hear of his reaction to the American entry to the war. Remember that Page was very pro-British in some respects. Wilson felt that Page had gone native. He had become too British, uh, and he was no longer properly representing America's interests. War will invigorate us. It will wake us up and shake us up. We need this war just as much as the Germans need taking down. War will end our isolation. It will make us less promiscuously hospitable to every kind of immigrant. It will re-establish our true heritage. It will revive our manhood. It will make us a great seafaring nation, like Britain. Five or ten years from now, or sooner, alas, the dead will be forgotten. The suffering will be a mere memory. The fields will recover their bloom, and life for many will go on much as before. 
But America can learn from the war. Become greater, stronger. We can cultivate those manly qualities required in wartime. We can resolve to be true to our traditions and ancestry. We can free ourselves from our isolationist, landlubberish thinking. Build ships, 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 and more ships. And still more. Troop ships, food ships, munition ships, auxiliary ships, wooden ships, steel ships, little ships, big ships, ships without number. We can sail them to the ends of the oceans and dominate the world, both in trade and in political ideology. But as well as ships, as well as expeditionary forces and loans to the Allies at a low rate of interest, we must make the moral issue clear. We speak of the wrongs that have been done to us, but injury has also been done to our ideals. If we value democracy in the world, this is the chance to further it. No more dreams about peace and conferences and leagues for the enforcing of peace and other intellectual diversions. This is war, and we must fight it in earnest. In December 1918, Woodrow Wilson arrived in one of those ships, um, actually the George Washington and previously a German passenger ship that had been requisitioned as a result of being interned in the war. Uh, he arrived at Brest. John Maynard Keynes, the British economist who took part in the peace talks, uh, likened Wilson to a messiah. George Henri did the French see him as a messiah? How did the French react to Wilson's arrival in Paris? Uh, he got a rapturous welcome, I must say, uh, massively. That we can be sure of that. We have films to show that and testimonies, because he was at that time changed. Later, at that time, and 18 being of 19, he was seen as the messiah of the new world. We talked about a new international system for peace. And, uh, and democracy, and no, uh, no more any war. That was the, the general idea, understandable. Jennifer, what was the legacy of their time in France for Americans and for France of the Americans being over here? One of the important cultural legacies of the war were going to be shifts in the Franco-American cultural exchange, if you will, that really weren't there in 1914 that were there in 1920. And I'll just give a few examples of this. One goes back to this question of African Americans and their experience in France. One of the very uh, famous aspects of the American experience was the jazz bands that African American regiments had, and especially James Europe's band from the, the 369th Infantry Regiment that was sent on a publicity tour throughout France and is in many sense credited with bringing jazz to France. And this was the forerunner of expatriate African-American community that would take root in Paris after the war, the sort of Paris Noir. And these were artists and writers and poets and activists who would go back and forth across the Atlantic and really connect Harlem to Paris 
uh, in important ways. And we can see a similar sort of literary connection being created through the lost generation. So many of the American writers, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Dos Passos, who would really encapsulate the memory of the First World War for the post-war generation in terms of its significance, these were also people who had strong French ties in Paris and then were be explaining the war to Americans. And I think my last example would be, I think, a very different type of example of something that did not exist in France before the war, and that was the existence of eight American cemeteries that housed 30,000 American war dead. And before the war, there had been the intention pretty much of bringing American war, war dead home. But after the war, there was a strong movement to create these cemeteries and keep war dead in France, both as a reminder to France of America's sacrifice, but also a reminder to Americans that they had shed blood for France and it, they needed to make that sacrifice worthwhile by continuing to stand by France in the post-war period. Yes, I think that reminds me of, of Tender is the Night, where there are American family members who are coming to France precisely to visit the mm -hmm. cemeteries. We think of Wilson's achievement uh, in 1919 as ending in failure. Uh, we think of the refusal of the Senate to ratify the agreement uh, of the League of Nations, in particular, not maintaining the world order that, that Wilson had uh, hoped it would achieve. And yet many of the principles of Wilsonianism, of Woodrow Wilson's thinking, persist in American foreign policy, at least until the most recent presidential election in the United States. The ideas of the League of Nations have found their reflection in the United Nations after the end of the Second World War. Georges-Henri, how is that legacy uh, seen within France? What is, for France, the consequence, if you like, of Wilson's decision to enter the war in 1917 in the longer term? Of course, because of the failure to have to, to get the treaty ratified at the time, it was a bit forgotten. But it came back during the 30s when Roosevelt uh, uh, became president. He started discussions with preeminent French uh, politicians and they understood before the war, before the Second World War, that one had to recapture that spirit of alliance between the three Western democracies. And uh, you cannot understand French foreign policy starting in the mid-30s until the end of the Cold War and even beyond that, if you want, if you miss that very important link that both on the American side and on the French side, many, many politicians, British side, evidently, politicians realized that it had been a mistake not to follow Wilson's indications to the end in 1919, and they wanted, so to say, to recap that with maybe some adjustments in a more realistic way, as Roosevelt wanted to have it after the war. But then, if you miss the very important link of the 30s, when Nazis begins to, to rise, huh, you miss part of the story, explaining why it was an enduring story. If you want my private opinion, it's not finished. Sadly, we are finished. <laughs> thank you, Georges-Henri Soutou. Thank you, Jennifer Keane, very much. And thank you all for your attention. Thank you.